and welcome back to Death Watch's Call of Cthulhu campaign, Season 2, Descent into Darkness. I am Travis, I'll be your keeper tonight. And last we left off, our investigators were standing outside the lodge hall of the Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight, uh, determining what they were going to do next. They had recently been contacted by Detective Wayne Nichols to help him solve a murder. But for a moment, before you guys decide what your next move is, we're going to focus on Monroe as he stands outside the lodge hall. Uh, it is June in Boston, so it's muggy and warm, although it's still customary for you guys to wear jackets and things of that nature because they're part of how you dress up. Are you wearing your your garishly colored? Yeah. The one that I have on your token there? Yeah. Did I get the colors on that right, by the way? I was trying to do it from memory. Yeah. That's pretty close. I imagine that the uh, that the red's more of like a circus ringleader red. Right. But yeah. So uh, in your breast pocket on the inside is a folded letter that you had received uh, some days before coming to the Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight. So let me share that with you real quick. Okay, so this is a letter you received from Jackson Elias. That's dated Thursday, May 5th, 1921, and it reads, Dear Mr. Monroe, I hope that you received my draft on events surrounding a certain pyramid in Peru. I think it will do well once published, despite the omission of key details. I am afraid the full narrative will have to remain solely in the minds of those of us who were there. However, this letter is not about my book. As you know, I have remained in Peru while I work through the editing process and so I can pull at a few loose threads that still bother me. One thing I have discovered is the identity of the priest who gave the last rites to Gaspar Figueroa, Padre Ramirez, as in Father Ramirez. Not only did he gain Figueroa's journal, but also the golden mask which Figueroa pulled from the pyramid on his fateful visit. The Padre wrote about the visions he saw in its mirrored surface and of a being he sometimes communicated with. His writings took a bizarre turn in the later entries to a degree that I almost gave up translation work. I endured, and with the help of Professor Sanchez, we learned the Padre authored a means to reliably contact the entity. The method is detailed in the translations included with this letter. If you want my advice, take these writings, the translation work, and the mask and throw them in the deepest pit you can find. According to church records, Padre Ramirez traveled into the highlands and was never seen again. On a personal note, I plan to be in Massachusetts this fall, Arkham, Boston, and Salem specifically, all to promote my latest and greatest work of mostly nonfiction. A display of artifacts recovered from the site along with my expose on events might make a powerful event, wouldn't you agree? Perhaps we can arrange to have dinner and catch up when I get back to the States. Your good friend, Jackson Elias. All right. And this actually came with a... Uh, package uh, the collected notes of this Padre Ramirez. So I'll share the summary of that with you as well. So this was just like a cover sheet on a journal that's written in Spanish. And uh, but if when you got the journal and you flipped through it, it had you know like strange diagrams and whatnot drawn in the middle section. And you can see this is uh, in a different handwriting. Whoever wrote this. So this is the summary of Padre Ramirez's journals. Upon giving Gaspar Figueroa the last rites and arranging his burial, Padre Ramirez found himself the inheritor of a strange tale 
a golden section of work banding, and a mask-like artifact whose inner plane was mirrored. Ramirez soon discovered that looking into the mirrored surface of the golden mask caused obscure visions of the future or distant places. One such vision described several strangely dressed figures with mules descending from a mountain path towards a partially buried pyramid. And on one occasion, he communed with a strange being by some manner of extrasensory telepathy. In the early days, Ramirez wondered if this was some manner of miracle, but upon his encounter with the entity, he believed he was dealing with a demon, or perhaps the adversary himself. Through a process of experimentation with the mask and careful notes, he found that he could reliably contact the entity. See page 16 through 25 for notes on this process. Who he began to refer to as the father of maggots. Ramirez felt it was his personal mission from God to confront and rebuke this father of maggots. However, he described how each calling of father left him drained and weakened. Towards the end, he began to question his faith and so resolved to travel to where he believed the father of maggots to be and cast him back to hell. Okay. So that was just included with the journal and the full translation as just sort of an abstract of everything that's in there. Yeah. Um, now, this actually counts as what's called a mythos tome. Mm. So in <laughs> order to do a full study of it and to learn the spell in there, which is the way to reliably contact the entity within the mask, mm-hmm. you would have to sit down with it for a period of time. Wasn't that what I did during my... Uh investigator period the spell you learned was your ability to force people to do what you suggest that they do this uh, this this is suggesting a way to contact the entity in the mask whereas before it was kind of random okay yeah like i think whitmire still has yet to or hasn't quite he did once and he made a deal for wealth right john yeah Yeah. he double crossed them but it like took sure a bit, did. right? Because yeah. I seem to remember you like spamming the mask every opportunity <laughs> yeah. and you keep getting the old man in the corner. <laughs> now, I'm aware that you don't have the mask, but Jackson Elias wasn't aware, aware of that. He picked you as the most likely to keep it. And he's also pretty friendly with... Uh, yeah, Monroe. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure that after I had received his letter, I would have sent back yeah. a letter saying that if he wants to, to hold his you know, gathering that my my museum is always available for him as right. many of the artifacts that we brought back are already there. And Yeah, all of you guys have had a correspondence with him. And the, the mention that he'll be here in the fall, uh, Andrews, you received a letter, Whitmire received a letter. It just didn't talk about the mask or anything. It was some small talk and he asked you a few questions about what you guys had been up to and that sort of thing. Yeah. But anyhow, yeah, so keep that in mind. Another way a mythos tome can be used is it has a, a rating attached to it. So you can go and reference it if there's some question that you have, and then you roll against that rating, and that determines whether or not the tome actually speaks about it. Okay. Granted, this one's pretty low, but just so you know. And there's sanity loss associated for reading the full notes, of, of course. Of course. And it would raise your mythos skill. All right, so the mechanical stuff out of the way, um, we now focus over at the good Dr. Andrews, who has some specialized knowledge about medicine and the way procedure works at hospitals and whatnot. So after listening to Detective Wayne Nichols give his story, one thing you know about autopsies or about medicine in general is that despite the scientific basis on which 
modern medicine has built. The pull to succumb to convenient explanations for causes of death is pretty immense. So much of good doctrine in your experience has been to rely on informed tuition or a good understanding of your patient's history. Sometimes, however, like a young person will die with no discernible cause of death and an honest answer to tell the bereaved parents or something like that would be say, well, I don't know how they died, but uh, people don't generally like that. So, you know, a lot of unprincipled doctors, which in your experience is about as highly occurring as the unprincipled in society in general, will just say brain aneurysm or undiagnosed brain aneurysm as being the go-to for why someone young like inexplicably dies, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sort of the same thing with autopsies because they rely on a narrative, you know, this is what happened to tell the parents, tell the husband or the wife, to tell a jury. And obvi- or in a lot of cases, outlying details are omitted or if they don't fit the narrative, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that this is how Andrews runs things. But this is what you've experienced being a doctor, is that other doctors aren't above that sort of thing. Right. In fact, it's quite common. So that knowledge is in your head. And with that, you're each standing outside of the lodge hall. And I'll open it up to you guys. You have a few hours before you have to be back here for initiation for those who are joining the order. So I guess we could start with Whitmire. Um, or if you guys wanted to talk to each other to, to arrange some sort of course of action. Well, mm-hmm. I do have uh, kind of a list of uh, start points that I'll throw out, see what everybody else thinks. So there's the uh, uh, checking out the, the detective partner's house to try and find that journal. Uh, there's also searching the estate, and w- there we could possibly find more information on uh, that the, he had written down in the almanacs, if there was any others. Uh, there's the sacrifice, uh, or ritualistic link. Uh, we could start at his cigar shop and see about the building that the college kids that were vandalizing, or we could go to the sanitarium and try and get some information out of the nephew. What are you guys' thoughts on those, though? Hmm. Well, I believe first I must, uh, in the purpose of full disclosure, um, state that I have in fact, been acquaintance, uh, acquaintance with uh, Herr Dooley. Uh, we met briefly during the investigation of the Corbett House. Uh, he was a rather charming man, a Zorbit crass. But beyond simple uh, acquaintances, I know not of him beyond that. Um, I believe that the sanitarium would be a good visit. I would be willing to go there and meet with, um, who was it, his uh, nephew? Yeah, nephew, Charlie Murphy. Thank you, disembodied voice. <laughs> uh, what um, do I you also... think, uh, Doctor Andrews? Do you do you concur with uh, uh, Mister Mueller? Yes, I think that is the best course of action. Although I'm not necessarily convinced that we'll have a lot of success talking with him. All right, and uh, as for me, I believe I'll you, be heading directly Lance. to the uh, directly into the library to begin investigating the subject matter of the ritualistic disembodiment or disemboweling and um, dismembering of of the corpse. Uh, the way that it was 
spoken about with the imagery of how the body was laid out along with the eye that was scrawled along the wall um, being found in other locations as well suggests that suggests that the uh, that it's a common practice and if it is a common practice and there's sure to be documentation of it somewhere and hmm. we're better to find it than in the grand library of the the hermetic order uh, well if not there then uh, the good mr. Merriweather also has quite an extensive library of occult traditions that may hold a clue as well before you you run off <laughs> to do that and what what did you uncover at the Corbett house, Mr. Mueller? And does it have, did you see any, any, uh, links that we could reference between what happened to, uh, Mr. Dooley in, and the Corbett house? Well, uh, from what I remember, Mr. Dooley had been watching the Corbett house for a good deal of time from his, uh, the front entrance of his establishment. Uh, and he would swear that there were many strange going-ons from the various uh, occupants of the houses over the years. Um, as for the Corbett house itself, um, uh, I encountered nothing strange, though me and my companion, or my companions uh, differ greatly on the actual uh, happenings inside the house. They claimed... Uh, some sort of supernatural or, or uh, mystical uh, going ons, but I never saw such. I chalked it up to uh, perhaps a gas leak or maybe even spores of some sort. Um, that said, while we were investigating it, uh, we did stumble across uh, a tome of some sort, and uh, it went missing. Um, there was also potentially a cult. Something to do with an eye. Yeah, Lance's ears will perk up at, at the occult tome mentioned and, and the eye and um, begin asking. So when you say it went missing, how exactly did it did it d disappear? Did somebody run off with it? Unfortunately, uh, it? we do not know. Uh, it was left with me for studying as I have some small uh, knowledge in the area of the occult. And I had gone up to my room. I the last things that I remember was sitting in the chair smoking my pipe, and uh, when I woke up, it was gone. Hmm. The uh, the manager of the hotel claims that I went out at some point for a walk. Perhaps this is true, but I have no memory of it. Hmm. Well, I've never experienced this kind of hypnotism from an occult tome. I, I believe <laughs> I've heard of these kinds of things. When you get to my it. age, memory lapse is not something that is the result of hypnotism. Herr uh, Monroe. <laughs> that, that being said, I would still love to have seen that tome. I would have as well. It it appeared to be old, very old. Mr. Whitmire, you have uh, some contacts in the underworld that may have perhaps fenced an object of those natures. Perhaps you could uh, drop a question into that realm and see if see what you can come up with. So I'd be more than happy to try. Although I don't, how long ago was this, uh, Mr. Mueller? That was in about last year, about a year ago. Um, okay. About a year ago, give or take. All right. Yeah. So I and I can, I guess I can start there if uh, if no one has objections to that. What the oh the the tracking down of the yeah. See if I could find what that uh, what that tome 
or book that you look that you got that okay. you uh, mis uh, misplaced <laughs> might have. Zempa, then perhaps I will venture to another library as the hermetic orders will be closed to me. Uh, pursue those two avenues separately, perhaps, Mister Air Monroe. Perhaps. Um, in the mean, in the meanwhile, we can uh, just see what the libraries that are at our disposal have. Hmm. Gentlemen, I think my contribution would best be following up my reservations about this coroner's report um, because there are some issues with it. For whatever reason, it didn't make clear that it's strictly not possible for a boy or even a man to tear people's limbs off without the use of tools. So maybe if I speak with him, I might learn more. Hmm about why his report has these errors. It's possible that someone encouraged him to write this report this way. Mm, I agree. So I think that would be the best place for me to start. And now that I've had time to think on it, I'm not sure what benefit I could add to meeting with the nephew. Mm. Unfortunately, Intellectual disability is a wide spectrum, and I don't know the details, but it's quite possible that we won't be able to communicate with him at all. Oh, it is very possible, depending on how bad the severity of his break is. Mm. But um, I have some slight knowledge in that, but I believe right now probably the investigation of the, of the ritual itself might uh, work out, as well as the autopsy, to mm. disprove that a man could do such a thing. Um, um, uh, after you you uh, talk with that coroner, do you want to meet up at that uh, detective's partner's house and help me by uh, asking him some questions while I investigate that journal? Yeah. Um, okay. Then uh, perhaps we meet up and discuss the uh, outcomes of our investigations at dinner tomorrow night as uh, detectives. Yeah. De now, which detective are you talking about, Whitmire? I'm, his, his I'm talking about the detective's partner, the one because he said that he saw that journal on the icebox. Oh, right. As I okay. want to see. I just need someone to distract him for a while. <laughs> I see. Which is why I quickly decided to be elsewhere. Oh, <laughs> as much as I appreciate the gains from your uh your exploits i am still a little uncomfortable being a part of them well if causing a distraction is the objective then mr monroe is hands down the best <laughs> pick for that no offense mr monroe what time why is would it i take offense at that my my uh glorious nature to draw attention to myself mm -hmm. is led me down some great paths and has yeah. served me well in oh. my profession. Yes, I can see. Ah, there? Or ah. a little after, I should say. So a little say. afternoon. So you guys, yeah. uh, I guess effectively how we can do it is for those of you that are joining the order, you'll probably have about enough time to do one thing, unless it's a quick thing, before you're, you're called back to go through the initiation ceremony and okay. Johan will be able to go on a little bit longer than that. Alright, so would you care to... Uh, Travel to the library with me, Mr. Mal Ad Monroe. Spending some time with a fellow occult academic would be most delightful. <laughs> no, no. The, the occult uh, came as a byproduct of my true calling, which is as uh, the histories. 
Uh, history and some of the things of the occult are tied together so tightly that they're indistinguishable. They are indeed. I would love to pick your brain. Let's... Uh, uh, then I'll be uh, off to speak with the coroner and we'll, we, us three at least, will meet back here at what time is the ceremony to begin? It'll be like five, six around there then with the dinner afterwards. Okay. Well, Dr. Andrews, until then, auf Wiedersehen. I'll, All right, uh, I guess just I'll just try to uh, put out some feelers to try and gather some information about. Uh, I, I would like to to put it out about not just the book, but uh, see if I can um, if anybody's heard of any any type of rituals like that before. In uh, kind of like uh, you know, killers leaving a signature mark, something like that, right? Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay. So is the book, did you name the book to them, the the Liber Ivanus? Ivanus? Um, if I could remember that. Yeah, I think you probably did. Okay. All right, well, we'll begin with the good Dr. Andrews as he walks down the street. And how did you want to go about um, tracking down this Dr. Dicklaw? I suppose there's a couple of different ways you could do it. You could search records for information on his license, and, and you probably get like, his practice, or you could do the phone book, or you could try to establish a contact here in Boston that's in the medical community that could uh, put you in contact with him. What was this coroner's name again? I think I have it on the... Dr. Dicklaw? Yeah. I should have changed the name. It's one thing to write it, but <laughs> to say it, maybe uh, change him to... Uh, gotta lay it down somehow. Dicklaw. There we go. That's what we'll say. Um, all right, so how do I go about finding him? So one um idea was to go ask Detective Nichols where okay. Dr. Dyclaw's office is kept. Yeah, you turn to head back into the, where had he left? <coughs> or you see him, we'll say you see him out there in a parking lot they have for uh, adjacent to the building. Mm-hmm you know, getting ready to get into his car mm. and you jog up to catch him. What's up? That would be something that uh, I would like to kind of rewind and go back to is that uh, is the detective's knowledge that uh, I had encountered Mr. Dooley might not be, might be uh, distracting to getting the nephew off of his charges. It might complicate things if uh, we agree on that. Fair enough. Thank you, Shane. Yeah, so you jog up to him and uh, get his attention, and, and he turns around. Uh, Dr. Andrews, what is it? Detective Nichols, uh, I'm glad I caught you, and sorry to keep you, but I was uh, thinking over this case, and the biggest issue that I have with it is the coroner's report. I'm not sure what your instincts are when reading it, but I can tell you it is quite impossible for people's limbs to be torn off by manual strength let alone for a 14-year-old boy. And so I think the best place for me to start would be to speak with the coroner himself and determine uh, as a you know medical professional to medical professional why he didn't point that out in his report. Oh, that was my assessment as well. Unfortunately, we encounter it quite a bit in my line of work. Um, but the doctor, he works at 
Boston General, and you'll find him there. He's there most days of the week. He's our main guy we we go to for autopsies, and he works with the coroner's office there. And he asks if you have a, a paper. or If you're from Boston or spent time here, then you would know where it's at, which I think in your background, you went to school here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so you're familiar with its location. At and, Boston uh, General? Yeah. He's uh has a bit of a fragile ego, like most doctors, if you can pardon my <laughs> generalization there. But yes. just so you're aware, he I, didn't take my challenges to his official report too kindly. Uh, injected me, uh, or ejected me from his office, in fact. Oh, one of those. Very well. Then I shall... Uh, take care not to get him too ruffled before I've gathered the information I need. But thank you, Detective, and uh, we'll be seeing you again tomorrow evening for dinner. Yeah, and good luck with the initiation ceremonies there. Interesting. Um, I won't be there tonight, though. I have my duties to attend to. I will see you tomorrow. Good day, sir. Excellent. Uh, getting across town's no problem for somebody with your wealth. I don't know if you had your own vehicle, but you could also just hire a taxi or you could um, tap Finn McCracken, always ready to drive investigators to places they need to go. Yeah, I um, have not been back here long enough to get a vehicle, so I'll just rely on a taxi. Okay. I'm yeah. not sure if I'm staying, so... Right. So getting across town um, is no issue, although the traffic has increased somewhat since you were last here. In fact, there are many more autumn. How or what year would it have been when you did your schooling? I guess there would have been no automobiles the last time you were here then. Yeah. So we're in 1921. So then I guess it would have been 1914, somewhere around there. Yeah. So maybe a couple here and there, but yeah, it's uh, not that the hustle and bustle is that there's more of it necessarily, but the the automobile has changed the pace. So as you travel across town, like everything seems to happen really fast, much faster than it did with horse and buggy. And uh, sorry, go ahead. Another interesting thing. Um, Boston was actually where the first subway was built at the end right. of the 1800. Yeah. Which was also an option. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, you uh you he pulls in front of General the Boston General Hospital and he lets you off and you know that usually the coroner's offices are kept in the basement levels mm-hmm. where the mor- like near to the morgue. Yeah, where the freezers are. Yeah. And there's no obviously no need to really like check in with anybody. You can just walk in and go to where you think it will be. And there are signs that indicate where different departments are and what have you. So in short order, you find yourself standing outside the coroner's office within the hospital there. And uh, you can see stenciled on the door is Dr. Dyclaw's name. <laughs> it's always been Dyclaw. Mm-hmm. It was never anything never, else. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> you let yourself in. And there, uh, you know, an old frail woman is working the count or the desk, you know, typing away mm-hmm. at the typewriter with a pretty impressive speed for an old lady. Um, so I'll take my hat off and stand patiently for her to 
you know, I don't, I don't want to upset her by right interjecting. So I'll be polite and wait for her with my hat off. Yeah. So she gets to a point where she rings the. Oh, I don't even know what it's. You know, it uh, the ribbon or whatever hits they the call end, it. and the it goes, and she sets it back, and then she looks up at at you, and she says, "Yes." Uh, good afternoon, ma'am. I was hoping to speak with Doctor Dyklaw. I'm Doctor Wallace Andrews. So she gets out up without further comment and and goes off somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, she gives you sort of a look, like slightly annoyed, but she goes into an adjoining office, and uh, you hear murmured. There's a Dr. Andrews here for you. And after a moment, uh, a fairly tall man with, you know, like a long, like all his features are, are kind of like long. Like there's this huge gap between his nose and his upper lip that's kind of um, arresting because you don't see that that amount of it except on <laughs> Stephen King. But uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he just kind of, you know, he, he even sort of ducks his head to get get it through the door frame but um he has like a hard sort of uncaring look when his gaze falls up, up uh, across you and he says uh, i'm dr dyclaw what can i do for you um it's a pleasure to meet you sir i'm dr andrews and i've come to speak with you about a, a report you gave on a murder case uh the murder of a man named mr dooley Give me a psychology roll. It's a weird thing for him to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me find it. All right. Um, nice. Nice. Give yourself a check. So with that regular success, you see that when he says, I don't remember any Mr. Dooley or a report on a Mr. Dooley, are you sure I'm the right doctor? You, can, you know that he's lying to you. You saw the glint of recognition in his eyes. Uh, yes. Quite, sir. I've spoken with Detective Nichols, the lead investigator on the case, and I've seen the report for myself. In uh, fact, you could have the report. Right. If they yeah, I was going to say if I could. Yeah. <laughs> you could. This report here where you um, have signed your name. Okay. So he um, put some reading glasses up, you know, they were hanging around his neck and he pulls them up and he looks at it and he's like, oh, oh yes, uh, I do dozens of these. It, it's Quite hard to remember all of them. Mr. Dooley. Mm. Yes, quite gruesome, this one. And what is it that you wanted to know about this report? Well, I am looking over this report and was quite struck by the uh, details that the dismemberment of this body was not done in surgical manner. I'll point to the actual words. But by blunt force as evidenced by the torn and lacerated skin surrounding the joints. Dr. Dyklaw, it is quite impossible, as I'm sure you're aware, for one person, let alone a 14-year-old child, to tear limbs from a human body. Perhaps a finger, but knees, arms, quite impossible. And I was, uh, as I perused it, I was hoping to find some answer to this mystery. Do you remember seeing any evidence that uh, ropes maybe had been affixed to the hands or the feet, ropes that might have then been used by multiple people to tear this body limb from limb? Well, Dr. Andrews, um, if I saw that evidence, wouldn't it be in my report? Yes. 
And you can it, see his face had flushed. He has a, what I like to call thermometer face, where mm-hmm. you know immediately that you've <laughs> touched a sore spot, so it's gone red. Um, yeah, so at this point, then, what I want to try would be, I guess, what, persuade? Is that what it's? Persuasion, maybe? Yeah, um, you can use any of the social skills, whichever you seems most appropriate to how you Andrews might do it. Yeah, so... Um, so the objective then is to get him to is to get him to think that I'm actually trying to like be understanding here. Like, of course, it would be in your report, but as you said, you do so many of these, and oh, a man okay. of your of your stature and your uh, workload, anybody can understand that mistakes can be made, and so I'm just here to. Um, clear up any of these discrepancies that we see. Yeah. So I think with the way you're describing that, you could use one of two skills. You could use either persuade or charm, whichever stands a better shot for you. Yeah. Okay. I'll use persuade. I got a hard success. Make a check. Yeah. So that's the objective here is to get, at least at this point. Yeah. I didn't see it in your report, but as you said, you make so many of these. Anyone can understand with such a busy workload that things can be left out. And I'm just trying to clear up any discrepancies here. Well, it's a a relief you understand the stress that we're under here. Um, But I didn't leave any signs of being bound out of the report. Uh, I don't know how to make sense of the fact that somebody would just lie there and and be torn apart. You know, it's, it's... uh, inexplicable, and I admit that begrudgingly. But as to whether or not somebody can do that, that would be up for a jury to decide, don't you think? Uh, yes, of course. That's the way the law works, but it'd be best if the jury had all the information when they make that decision. I also wanted to ask your thoughts on the cause of death being blood loss during this dismemberment process. But the conspicuous lack of blood found at the crime scene. Hmm. It's another question, perhaps, if you spoke to Detective Nichols for him. As I'm sure you understand, I was not at the crime scene. I can't help but note an accusatory tone in your <laughs> in your voice, and it you can see you brought his uh, his. The tone in her cheeks to a bit, uh, white again, but now they go up red. Um, all right. So, um, yes, perhaps I find it interesting that a doctor would write this report citing a cause of death due to blood loss when no blood was found, citing dismemberment at every articulating joint by blunt force. That's what it appeared to be to me. So then, in your opinion, can this be? Can these activities be done by a fourteen-year-old boy? I should think not. And uh, if you're asking, did I see any marks that the body was drained of its blood prior to dismemberment? I did not see anything like that either. Everything that occurred to Mister Dooley is in the report, which you know to be a lie because he mentioned nothing about. The eyes being removed. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, I'll actually jump on that. Right. Well, ev- everything, I don't see anything in the report about his eyes being removed. 
So this uh, shocks him. And he says, how did you know about that before he can stop himself? <laughs> uh, and then he kind of is like, uh, what do you mean? Eyes removed. You know what I mean, sir. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so who, it was the detective that told us that, right? Yeah. Um, and the, te- the detective thought he'd done it himself because he had the. Right. He had flesh underneath his fingernails. Right. So that's, that's what I'll say then. Uh, Dr. Do- uh, Dr. Dyklaw, this uh, victim, had removed his own eyes, all signs point to, based on the flesh found under his own fingernails. This is a glaring yeah, detail. And so, yet you left it out of your report. Now, why would you do that? So he pauses for a moment, looking nervously at uh, his secretary, who is now listening to the back and forth with interest. And he says, Miss Wilson, I think it's time for your lunch break now. Mm-hmm. And so she hops up and, and exits the scene. Yeah, I'm going to make a mental note of her name in case okay. I need to talk to her later. So, <laughs> so um, he's like, surely, Dr. Andrews, you can't be so naive as to not understand how things work in Boston. It is precisely because I am not naive that I'm here speaking with you. This is a preposterous report that struck me immediately upon hearing the details of the case that this 14-year-old boy, and a slow one for that matter, is slated to be put on death row for a crime he could not have committed. Well, that certainly could not have committed alone. And I understand that police and politicians have a desire to solve cases, but it's my own theory that some pressure must have been put on you in order to leave such glaring details out of the report that you signed your name to. Well, you're correct. You're quite right. The powers that be want it to appear that way, and it's dangerous to argue against those powers. Uh, Somebody paid me to make the report the way it is. Who paid you? I will just say that who paid me is also the same as who's prosecuting this case. The same department. Hmm. How much did they pay you? What does it matter? I suppose it doesn't. Enough for a doctor to accept it. In and for a penny, in for a pound. <laughs> it goes all the way to the <laughs> In fact, I've had quite enough of this conversation. As have I. And I had enough of it before you did. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll run out. (laughs) Uh, You can see yourself out, Dr. Andrews. Good day, Dr. Dyklaw. And as you exit the coroner's office, you... (laughs) Yeah, I want to put emphasis on that. That that (laughs) I I judge that he has betrayed his profession. Yeah, after you close the door, you hear, you know, something crash. No. Like it was pushed over in a fury and uh, some muttered cursing. Mm-hmm. I think Andrews is now able to get a detective license with that. Right. <laughs> that was pretty gumshoey. Yeah. Good job, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So our, the scene will fade on the good Dr. Andrews as he stands outside the coroner's office there. And we will pop over to old Jimmy Whitmire as he hits the streets of Boston. 
trying to think if any of his old connections here are, are still operating at the same place as they were. So, James, we can sort of abstract you, you know, traveling around Boston, trying to reconnect with some of the old people you used to run with, with a, we'll use your career skill, your career skill stand in and, and have a stealth role. And if I understood it correctly, you're asking about this Lieber Ivanis and any any more murders that sort of fit the description of what happened to Mr. Dooley? Yeah, I, I'd also like to inquire about uh, who who has a a desire for occult, um, you know, stolen like occult goods. Okay, as maybe I can't find necessarily the people that that sold it, but uh, possibly find a couple leads on who it might have went to at least is the thought process behind that. Okay, so uh you know, we get like a montage of you walking up to a guy on the street corner that, you know, sells bootleg liquor or, you know, go into some some old gambling houses you knew of to meet people that were into that sort of thing, you know, and you you're talking to them and you're met with, you know, failure at first, but go ahead and get that stealth roll out there for me. And that represents your knowledge of fences and other things that move objects on the down low. Oh. <laughs> so an extreme success. Yeah, I see that. Well done. It's because of the montage, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so it's at one of these gambling houses, uh, at least from outside you. It just looks like somebody's residence, but the basement area has been converted to sort of an exclusive speakeasy and um, the guy who works like you go inside the house and then the basement steps descend down to this area and there's a big uh, fella standing there who recognizes you from back in the day and he says ah jimmy haven't seen you around boston for a while how you doing good what is his name oh, sorry he pauses to think like about it joe <laughs> Hey, no, Joey, is... good to see you. I like Joe. Joe. All right, yeah, we'll go with it. We'll call him uh, Joe Jackson. Those, uh, At least that's I'm the only says. one that calls him Joey, though, because he probably doesn't like it. Yeah, he says, oh, I'm doing good. You know, where you been? You know, like I said, we uh, haven't seen you. You haven't done any work for uh, for the boss for a little while. No, nah, I mean, you remember I, I lost that shipment uh you know, that I was trying to run down south, and then I uh, ended up overseas for a bit. It was, uh, you know, some international work, but I'm back. Was, uh, how about you? How have you been? Uh, pretty good. Same old thing, standing at this door, letting people in. <laughs> so you going in or not? <laughs> yeah. Was, uh, I'll, uh, I'll ask him who's still around. Oh, you know, the usual guys, Owen, Drew, Casey. They're all in there right now playing cards. I'll, I'll nod to him and slip him uh, like two, three bucks. Okay. Yeah, he pockets it deftly and gives you his thanks, turns around and opens the door behind him and then, you know, stands up to make himself sort of thin so you can scoot by and get into this smoky interior where there are a few tables laid out and people are playing cards and, uh, you know, that murmur of conversation rises in the room 
along with an ephemeral haze of, of cigarette and cigar smoke. And you see the you see those guys, Casey, Owen, and Drew, are not actively playing a game. They're just sitting around smoking and listening to the radio. Sounds like a baseball game. Okay. So yeah, if I can, I'll I'll try to um not like you know crouch down sneaking or anything, but I'll just uh, try and make my way to the table without causing a lot of ruckus and uh, get there. Put my hand on Drew's shoulder and. Say, uh, what's new, boys? Ah, prodigal son returns. Been a long time, Jimmy. Uh, sure you got a has. lot of nerves showing up here. Uh, you know me. Was uh, always uh, they always said that I had some big ones. Was uh, <laughs> but what's new with you guys? Ah, uh, you know, just listening to baseball. So, what brings you back to Boston? So I'll uh, pull up a chair and. Uh, Kind of lean in like I'm listening to the game and just ask him that uh, yeah I'm I'm looking for uh, I'm looking for some books now right those uh, some weird books uh, I'll kind of give him a little bit of an idea of of uh, not like the whole uh, detail of it but just uh, you know some mythos type um, books is the gist that I'm trying to uh, get across to him. You dropped the booze and went to books? That don't make no sense. Is there money in that? Uh, there is, you know. It's uh, a lot more, and a lot more than you would think. Was, uh, you guys should, you know, stop by sometime. Was, I'll, I'll show you show you some stuff that I got overseas. Yeah, we'll do that. I, you in town long? I hear you're in New York now. Yeah, I uh, decided to, to move uh, out of Boston those uh, things got a little dicey, you know, with that last run. Yeah, that's what I heard. Anyhow, I did hear about somebody asking for a book, but you're, you're not going to like who it was. Can I, uh, do I know <laughs> with that who it probably is? Probably. Uh, you think of two options, but when he says the name, Francis Walsh, otherwise known as Francis Sweetheart Walsh, it's the least worse option in a way, it's not the guy that who had the the load of uh, bootleg liquor you dropped, but he has a pretty severe reputation. The gangster of Charleston, uh, they call him Sweetheart, sort of tongue in cheek. He does like to make deals with people, but you know he'll kill you if you go back on one of his deals, like without hesitation. So a lot of people are wary and dealing with him. But yeah, that's who's that's who was asking for it. Mm. Well. I and mean, I guess it could be worse, but not by much. As, uh, is he still hanging around at any of the old places, or he got somewhere new? Yeah, uh, he's still he's still at that uh, uh, that old bar of his that he had going before Prohibition came in. You thinking about going over there and talking to him? Uh, I may have big ones, but I don't think they're that big. Yeah, I didn't think I'll so. <laughs> kind of clap uh, clap one of the guys on the back. Those. But uh, I'll sit there and listen to the game with him for a bit um, and then bring up, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, about that stuff that I, that international job that I had, you know, is you guys know anywhere else might unload some uh, occult goods? Not books, I mean, but something else. Yeah, I can talk to a few people if I get a, a cut of it, of course, if you sell anything. Well... Obviously, 
I mean, like I said, you guys all need to come by. There's uh, definitely got some work for the old crew here. All right, we'll pause there with you, Mr. Whitmire. Scene will fade on you guys listening to the baseball game and smoking tobacco. Okay, so Mr. Moeller and Mr. Monroe are setting off to plumb the depths of collected knowledge at some library somewhere. So you guys both know that there are quite a few places you could go in Boston. You know, there's the your standard Boston public library. Uh, there's the Whit or sorry, the Widner Library on the Harvard campus, which is actually the biggest collection of books in the United States at this time. I think Perhaps they don't like the me though. There's one of those places <laughs> that don't like me. I got thrown out. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> you guys were at the public library when you because you, you were knocking on the walls trying to find their secret location. I thought I also got thrown <laughs> out of another one though because I was trying to find uh, access to books that were kind of like. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, Dr. Henry Armitage at the Miskatonic Library. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a faux pas there. Uh, I think I'm detecting a pattern. With <laughs> hey, he gets turned around uh, aged aged paper and ink. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so you guys are, are discussing where I suppose best to start, because you're going off together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll try to steer Monroe against any of the libraries that know my face <laughs> and what, have one. was it the harvard library that you no it was uh the miskatonic okay uh, and then the public library here. i'm actually kind of having a flashback to one of the mask visions i had where yeah. it was like outside harvard university okay did you so, have a vision like that yeah, yeah. It was i'll like, neither confirm nor deny <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was there was one of the mask visions i had that had like two people like dragging a homeless guy into harvard university or something like that if you say so um i was going through my <laughs> Last journal to see if I could find out exactly. It's what appears that reality has abandoned your uh, Monroe. Yeah, I was <laughs> saying that the game master is like the best Siri ever. He remembers everything and just spits it out. At, well, speaking uh, of the mask, uh, just a quick aside for Whitmire, uh, where is the golden mask? As it's uh, in a safe location <laughs> in New York. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyhow, continue your discussion. So, um, Mr. Monroe is trying to point. To the Widner Library? Uh, yeah, at, oh. at Harvard. Yeah, and so I'll kind of go, I'll go, go along with that. Like, yes, yeah, so a public library is just uh, full of nuisances and kids are running around and that other library is just full of buffoons. Yes, they, uh, <laughs> they also tend not to have the specialization of the kinds of things that we would... Also have them behind lock and key. Uh-huh. Which uh, would be problematic. I so. thought that this was America. So the uh, Widner Library is located, as I said, on the Harvard campus, which is outside Boston, either in or around the Cambridge neighborhood. So uh, being familiar with Boston as you are, Mr. Monroe, these are your stomping grounds. You know you can catch the uh, subway, or actually you guys are across the Charles River, so it's just a matter of you know getting a trolley or or a cab, okay. which I think beto- between your guys is... Credit ratings, you could probably soak that, no problem. Right. This isn't me trying to fish for a uh, skill, so I'm going to roll my history, and this is how much I attempt to just out-talk Monroe. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll the, gladly give somebody a check. Let's make it a contest. But uh, yeah, this is me trying to, out of character, just kind of out-talk <laughs> Monroe's character. <laughs> but are you a historian? Um, 
No. But you guys are pretty high, both in a cult, right? Yes. Well, maybe you can steer it to that subject, and then you guys could have a contest on that, and I'll give the check to the winner. Where's my history? If you role-play it a little bit. Under firearms? So... Why is it under firearm? Because knowledge is the most deadly weapon, Monroe. Is it an alphabetical? <laughs> All right. So there's yeah. oh, the first one would have been. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, it's like okay. I so would have gotten success. a success versus a, an extreme on his end as far as history. Now to steer towards the occult. Ooh. So would I verse that or? Yeah. So yours is fifty-five, and what was what's? So my history was fifty-five. I got a thirty. His was 80. He got a 13. So he got an extreme success on the history. All right. So uh, let's say as you're being battered by his impressive knowledge of (laughs) history. Yeah. That has nothing to do with occult. (laughs) Well, no. He's onto something that you think you might know more about the occult surroundings of a particular event. I'm going to say that there probably is something that you could seize on easily in that as he would specialize in like uh, Egyptian stuff. Like he, he was over doing some excavations in his youth. Okay, All right. So I got Lance's occult role. All right, so mine? Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. So just normal successes? So with a tie, it goes to the person with the higher rating. Okay. So once we turn it, so once I, I key on something on the occult, then I'll, yeah. I'll uh, start mentioning the the temples that we have in Peru and, and that the the recent excavations that we did there. And then, of course, lead that on into you know my research in occult uh, dealings here in the United States, especially in the Massachusetts area. So it it's a contest of wills back and forth. So I guess I'd be able to keep pace with a standard success? Yeah, you don't do too badly, but he uh, has very carefully laid a trap that displays one bit of ignorance in what you know. Mm, and then which he sprung the it local, at the tail end. The, the Peru end. <laughs> Maybe it left you shocked and speechless <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> Gotten him. <laughs> do I uh, do my eyes melt out of my face and my hair catch on fire? <laughs> Make a sanity roll, Mister Monroe. Uh, but that conversation, you guys, you know, it fills the cab the is whole it, ride. Is over. it one of those where we get in, like, to the point where we might actually, to outsiders, sound like we are yeah, having a yeah, full blown yeah. argument? <laughs> Very animated. So you see, <laughs> but I conjecture. Um, but yeah, so you guys, uh, the cab lets you out at the Harvard campus. <laughs> Do we have to pay or does he just <laughs> want us gone? Yeah, he since actually does. He's Mueller's like, hey, you guys got to pay. Since Mueller's an old guy with a walking stick, do you get the scene when you arrive where you just start stamping it down on the floor? Oh, yeah. To override uh, Monroe's objection? <laughs> oh, probably. I'm pretty sure we got the whole gambit here. <laughs> All right, so he wants us to pay. Right, yeah, because you guys started yeah. walking away, talking. And <laughs> right. He's like, "Oh, hey, the fair." I'll start patting my uh, my pockets. I'll lean heavily <laughs> on my cane and start patting my vest, trying to find my wallet. And I'll uh, I'll probably say something along the lines of, "Well, this is quite the turn of events. Usually, I'm the one that can't find my wallet." <laughs> I'm sorry, Almondro. It's is with age. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, it sounds like a wonderful excuse in all all aspects. <laughs> I'll narrow my eyes at him <laughs> and I'll kind of uh, 
uh, menacingly kind of shake my cane his direction. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll continue on. But, you know, as we are taught in our youth and as, as at least as far as anyone who has any civil manners, that we respect our elders here. And, and so it is my pleasure to, to pay for your cab ride over. You have sufficiently placated me, Amonro. <laughs> you are quite a gentleman and a scholar. Ah, as yourself. <laughs> and it is wonderful to meet such a scholar. All right, so as... Uh, Even if you count the Peru... Um, no. <laughs> Peruvian pyramids as scholarly um, endeavor. <laughs> <laughs> so the cab lets you out in Harvard Square. So it's you're well into the campus. You asked for the Widner Library specifically. So the cab lets you out as close as he could get you to it. Um, go ahead and give me a spot-hidden roll. Just Mr. Monroe. Oh, I believe that is ages of you, Air Game Master. <laughs> so you look around the campus and uh, you spot, well, this must be it over here. You both agree and you walk off that way. And uh, from everybody else's perspective, as the camera's looking at you guys, you see a gate that would be familiar to you had you spotted it. Had I been paying attention. <laughs> but we know that All it's right. there. So anyhow, the uh, the Widner Library's placed in a part of Harvard that's known as College Yard. And uh, you guys are both versed enough in the ways of libraries to know that the way this one works in particular is you go in and they have a bunch of reading tables and then you get a librarian to fetch books for you while you guys sit at the tables. The collection's actually closed to the public, even though the library's open. And they fondly refer to the place where these books are stored as the stacks as they are actually basement levels and they go underneath a large part of this area of the campus. Um, they have a reputation for those that have been in the stacks and you've been in a number of times on like official, if you've given a guest lecture at the college and you wanted access, then they, they let you go in there and it has a, a unique smell of mildewing books that permeates the area. Cause there are millions of volumes. It gets the blood pumping, right? Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so you walk into, um, this hushed atmosphere, although there is sort of a busy sound of turning pages and scribbling pens, and you can almost hear collective thought, it seems like, all this knowledge in one place. And you guys can pick a, a table or a bench area that you like by the window and signal to a librarian to get started. Actually, I'd kind of like to try and persuade the librarian to allow us down into the stacks in the occult section. <laughs> okay, so you have um, a couple of options, sort of similar to what Dr. Andrews got, where you could just leave it to a social skill role, um, or you could try to maybe use your archaeology, or Johan could use his history to establish contact at this college. Um, it will be, you'll need a hard success on the social skill role, Okay, but I think in both your guys' cases, a regular success might work for a contact okay okay yeah doing a contact and and i wouldn't want to just be left down there alone but having a guide with us that right. would normally go down and get the books and come back up and could possibly fetch stuff that they they know the location of or something like yeah that. yeah point okay yeah so history from johan and archaeology from lance. lance are you serious all right history really is his his uh i was a professional in yeah. it <laughs> And it's showing probably like, oh man, like 50 years. 
Yeah. So the way it plays out is the person, uh, you knew a professor of archaeology, but it just so happened that they retired within the last year. And that was a fact you were unaware of. Uh, but at that point, Johan's able to step forward while the librarian actually give me your uh, appearance role, Lance, real quick. Appearance. Yeah. I suppose that's probably under firearms too. Or credit rating, whichever one's higher. Appearance is a characteristic, so it's at the top. Yeah, it's one of your stats. Uh, well, they're both not very good. Um, appearance is higher, so all right. Nice. So I stand up straight and, you know, right. my coat straight. And... Yeah, you can see the uh, when I, when this librarian first sees you, it looks like, and he sees your attire, the garishness of it. It's like he's trying to blink a bright spot out of his vision after looking at you, but it doesn't damage your, his opinion of you in the end. However... The, the your contact just doesn't work there anymore, so it's not going to work. At which point, Johan steps in with uh, history, where you are actually somewhat acquainted with a history professor by the name of Preston Preston Brock. Okay. Against the thirty-five, I fail against the sixty. <laughs> <laughs> and he, the librarian, agrees. Well, I if it's, I suppose if you're here on on his say so. Yeah, I can I can take you guys down into the stacks. What is it that you're looking for? Uh, we are doing research on a occult ritual. Um, unfortunately, I do. Well, could we try to determine like the culture of origin, perhaps, of what based it off of what you heard in the yeah heard or saw like um uh no so not, we could narrow it down not really but just by occult you know, ritualistic sacrifice type stuff, it does narrow it down quite a bit. Um, so he says, yes, uh, uh, matters of a, a, a cult, particularly death cults and, and sacrifice, are uh, in the basement levels, if you gentlemen will come with me. Ah, don't get shen, young man. All right, so he leads you downstairs, down into the <laughs> dank, mildewy stacks. I'd like to turn my historical verbal assault onto <laughs> this poor young man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, we're probably both speaking at the same time. He's a he's a student. He's, he's like, I just work here, guys. I, <laughs> I think I'm going to not that become actually, a librarian. After <laughs> hearing that guys. he's a student would actually egg us on to teach him the things that he should know. Well, surely you would want to study in the fields of uh, history as well as Egypt if you are, <laughs> don't want to do anything with Peru. <laughs> Ah, here we are. <laughs> here uh, we are. Good day, sir. <laughs> uh, I'll just be uh, over over yonder if you guys need me to fetch anything specific. As you can see, there are little reading nooks here. Uh, make your yourself comfortable. And so, yeah, you have. Um, they're not very tall ceilings down here. Just tall enough to fit the shelves in on on either side. And there's rows and rows. And it's it's relatively dark down here, as there's no natural lighting. You just have these hanging lamps. Um, with those really pronounced uh, angular like circle shades on mm -hmm. them, right? So you have like these points of light every 15 feet or so, but then it can get rather dim as you move outside of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, I don't know if it's too late to change anything of the narration, but I do have a Harvard contact already. I have oh. Norma uh, Mayer, who is a Harvard librarian. <laughs> the librarian says, yeah, that's, what you said okay <laughs> and he, uh, 
<laughs> and it goes off. Okay, so I guess we'll start with the the use library role. And if I am remembering correctly, the particulars of the murder are what you're keying on, and also the I symbol. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So go ahead and give me the use library. This is where Monroe's going to shine. <laughs> All, right. All right. Oh, just a regular uh, success. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll be kind of wandering around, like peering at books real close because the lighting's probably bad on the old eyes. I can't quite see or make out what the uh, the titles are. And you're also finding, you know, the dearth of ways in which sacrifice has been performed. None of them seem to to match up to what was described with Mister Dooley. That's another thing that could possibly happen is because uh, this happens to me when cleaning my room is I'll find a book and begin to flip through it. And you get stuck on it. And hours go by. (laughs) And in your case, after also quite a long time of searching, uh, you actually find in a bit of, uh, I suppose, serendipity, one of Jackson Elias's books, The Witch Cults of New England, that you're kind of flipping through. You're like, oh, you know, he's in the occult section. I suppose I knew that. And uh, it details different cults, that survived the trip from England to the colonies. And as you're flipping through, you see an eye symbol that kind of grabs your attention. It's a, so yeah, when I, when I first pick up the book, I'll immediately begin, you know, name dropping, you know, Jackson Elias to, (laughs) to, uh, Oh, I know this. Yeah. And, and that even, even though he's probably not listening, I'll be going off on, you know, our, our adventure together and talking about, you know, our discussions in the past. And, you know, he may not even be in the same aisle as I am, but I'm still just talking. Oh, that is good, It's okay, Johan. You can one-up him. Because once you see uh, the, um, the name and some of the content, you realize that he gave a lecture at an SEU meeting <laughs> that you attended in the past. You just couldn't place it when you'd first seen the eye symbol, mm. like who it was. And everything he had said, but now it kind of comes together a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I'll kind of put a shaky hand and kind of write my glasses. And um, what was it? Oh, J- Elias Jackson. Jackson Elias. Yeah, uh, Jackson Elias. Ah, Elias. Yes, he. I attended the lectures that he gave. Uh, very uh, informative young man. Yes, um, and trying to one up him one more time, I'll say. Uh, we're we're in discussions with him in correspondence, of course, uh, as he's uh, still out of the states. He's he's planning on doing uh, a demonstration or a, a put on a symposium at my museum of uh, <laughs> one of his most recent books. Ah, I'll have you know that I'm older than your god. <laughs> I'll, hit, I'll, I'll hit him with my cane. <laughs> uh. So the content of this book, um, most of it you don't find useful. It's just the the matters surrounding the eye symbol. Uh, he associates the image, which is just a crudely drawn image. Um, it's so it's an eye with like three Y's, with the you know the I suppose the arms of the Y's angled towards the eye okay. surrounding it. So okay. Um, for those of you that have read the Corbett House incident report from the SEU then you would have seen a photo of it as well if, if that came in your memory. But, Johan, you're intimately familiar with it as you saw a painting of it at the Church of Contemplation. Um, so how much do I remember, like, the Church of Contemplation? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'll, uh, 
Ah, yes. That's it. Um, Herr um, Newell and uh, what were the other two that were with Thompson. Him? Thompson. We saw such a symbol at the um, abandoned church of contemplation. Uh, burned out uh, church that uh, was some sort of uh, the off sect of some religion. Um, we wrote our report on it. it we stumbled across it during the uh, Corbett House investigation. Hmm. Uh, which might be another avenue that we could go back to, perhaps. Yes, very much so. But now that we have this, perhaps we have something more to go on. So, uh, the yeah. book goes, or Jackson Elias goes on to say, and this is kind of like a, um, a wrap-up section of the book. The symbol, or the cult to which the symbol belongs, is not well detailed. He's just kind of going on to other ones that he's heard mention of uh, in New England and... The name of the cult that is attached to this eye symbol was called the Cult of Starry Wisdom, and they were based in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, now defunct as of the late 1800s. And he has some minor notes in there um, that there was rumors of child kidnapping and evidently sacrifice or murder because those missing children never came back, and that some members fled Providence because of the reputation of the Cult of Starry Wisdom. To other places like Boston, for example. Okay. He traced some members there before they fell out of the public record, or at least insofar as he was looking into it. And uh, so the length of time that you guys spent before you uh, came across this one, actually, you pull out your pocket watch or, or whatnot, and you realize it's about time to be getting back for your initiation ceremony. Okay. So you'll have to leave Johan to further study. Yeah, I'll make some some notes in my little notepad that I'd, I'd carry with me, and uh, ask him to if if he wouldn't mind researching the the cult of Starry. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is actually getting an eye twitch at me asking him to do something. <laughs> no, that that's <laughs> Johan. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's uh, why I had to switch eyes because the right one can't do it that good. <laughs> but yeah, I'll. Uh, I'll tell him that I must be on my way if I'm going to do the initiation into the Hermetic Order, but that uh, following up on the Church of the Starry, what was it again? Starry Church Wisdom. Of, Star, Church of the Starry Wisdom um, in in more depth might uh, give us the kind of leads we need to, to perhaps track one of these people down. Of course, Air Monroe. I'll gladly do such a thing. <laughs> Your company will be most missed. Uh, and I I have no doubt in your skills, and I, I am looking forward to finding what you have unearthed in this grand palace of wisdom upon my return. Indeed. And so I'll reach out a shaky hand and <laughs> grab his uh, his notes from him. Yeah. So Whitmire and Andrews, uh, similarly, you find yourselves at a point in time where you're to return for your initiation at the uh, Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight. So if there's nothing small... <clears throat> like grabbing dynamite that you needed to do before, then I'll just fast forward to that. I'm all out of dynamite. <laughs> so you got to pick some up. Yeah, I don't have any anything Saying else that, I uh, need to do. I don't have any two grabs, so I just I guess I'll just go to this hermetic order initiation with oh, a dynamite wheelbarrow full less. of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you guys arrive at the prescribed time at this. Uh, Romanesque structure, some three stories tall, 
And you go inside to the familiar foyer scene where the servant once again waits for an explanation he likely already knows, and he leads you up to the second level. Change over to that map. Give it a moment for it to load in for you guys. Are you there? Still just a blank screen. There it is. Um, You may have to zoom out to find the location that we're actually in. The rest of it's all black. Yeah, there we are. I found us. Okay, so you guys are actually led up by a servant where you're greeted by an order member at the top of the steps. Uh, You actually recognize him as James Clark, the lawyer you met earlier today. And he takes you into this room and he says, so there's, you know, there's, um, there's uh, a little bit of ritual to this whole thing, but I assure you it's just ritual. Uh, so what we're going to do is you guys are going to put on these black robes that we have here for you. And he, he kind of picks them off of hangers in that preparation room there. <clears throat> so what's going to happen is we're going to blindfold each of you and lead you into the lodge hall room. And then you're going to receive a lecture on our noble purposes. And he's kind of smiling at all this. You know, you could detect a bit of an embarrassment at the the ritualistic element of it, you know, at least in his case. And he says, as a new member of the order, you can expect to learn great and mysterious things. Uh, however, you're going to be asked after this lecture to bind yourselves with an oath. Although I want to say right off the start, you'll never be asked to do anything immoral or embarrassing. That's not what it's all about. The noble philosopher believes that ritual, you know, helps cement processes and commencements in people's minds. And that's the reason for all of this. Um, So if you'll put the robes on and uh, put on your blindfolds. Oh, one other thing to to teach you, secret handshake. So he uh, goes to each one of you and the handshake is just like, you know, you do the regular handshake, but then he says you tap your two fingers, you extend them and tap them on the other person's hand just three times. And that way, you know, if you've met an order member when you're out in public and you'll get weird looks when they're not an order member, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. What, what was that? Uh, handshake. So you extend your, your index or not your index. Yeah. Or your middle finger and your ring finger and then tap, you know, where it would reach out on the other person's hand. So if you were to shake, right. Just like that. (laughs) Everybody's trying to do the secret (laughs) handshake. Yeah, practice it a lot. It's trickier than it looks. Uh, yeah, that's an awkward way to... Like if it was a, your index finger and your middle finger, that'd be a little bit different. But Well, you could do that. How are they going to know? They're not looking. Yeah. They're just feeling the... Uh, yeah, trying to what is this? shake and then pull those two fingers up. To, oh. yeah. <laughs> well, you'll have to get the manual dexterity <laughs> to do it. Um, but anyhow, let's get you in the robes. Uh, we we do black for a neophyte, which is the rank you'll be attaining <coughs> upon this the end of this uh, ceremony. Uh, now, do you have any questions before we blindfold you and lead you across the way? All right, no hmm. questions. Are there any responses that we're supposed to give during these these meetings? I know that the, the time for oh, yeah. questions has passed. <laughs> no <laughs> questions. Yeah. So uh, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna ask that you repeat the oaths after him after the lecture. Um, so that's that's pretty much it for your part. And to kneel at uh, an altar 
Okay. All right. So you guys are led across the hall. You hear that door close. You hear another door open. And you get the uh, the sense of an immense spa- indoor space anyways when you come into the the next room. There's that change in acoustics. And you uh, you hear some murmurs like there might be more people there. And you feel that person leading you directs you to this altar and um, kind of helps you to kneel at the altar. And then he actually removes your blindfold. And the room is very dark, although there is some light coming from somewhere. And you see like the twinkling of of it reflected in eyes out to the left and right of you, you know, like other order members are, are sitting there. But if somebody wants to go and give me a spot hidden roll or everybody there, all three of you. I thought we were blindfolded. No, he took them off after he knows you. How do we do? Nice. We did really good. Okay. So yeah, you guys success you could want. (laughs) I got an extreme. Mine is hard. So you guys see that there are uh, these tiny electric lights in the ceiling that are very dim. Um, That is the source of the light in this room. Although you do also see two larger chandeliers that would light up the whole room if they were on. And one immense bulb in the center of the room that is currently off. Um, In any case, as you're knelt there at the altar, a robed figure steps up to the far end of the altar onto... uh, a dais there, and you can see, although you, you can't really pick out the color, but there's some huge drape behind them uh, that looks to be a, a different material than the rest of the wall. That's how you, you're able to distinguish it. But he stands up, even though you can't see who it is, you realize who it is when they begin speaking. It's John Scott, but he starts his lecture to you guys. Let us now endeavor to conceive what matter must be when or if, in its absolute extreme of simplicity. Here the reason flies at once to imparticularity, to a particle, to one particle, a particle of one kind, of one character, of one nature, of one size, of one form, a particle, therefore, without form and void, a particle positively, a particle at all points. A particle absolutely unique, individual, undivided, and not indivisible, only because he who created it by dint of his will can by an infinitely less energetic exercise of the same will, as a matter of course, divide it. At this point, that big bulb you guys saw in the center of the room flares so brightly that it's you can't even look at it, and you can actually feel the heat coming at it. It's like this huge high watt wattage bulb. And uh, you actually kind of have to shield your eyes from it. But then it kind of fades to just like the like regular room lighting. And he continues. The assumption of absolute unity in the primordial particle includes that of infinite divisibility. Let us conceive the particle then to be only not totally exhausted by diffusion into space. From the one particle as a center... Let us suppose to be irradiated spherically in all directions, to immeasurable but still to definite distances in the previously vacant space, a certain inexpressibly great, yet limited number of unimaginably yet not infinitely minute atoms. And at that point, these small lights start to twinkle on brighter in 
a ring out from that big bolt, right? This constitution has been affected by forcing the originally and therefore normally one into the abnormal conditions of many. An action of this character implies reaction. A diffusion from unity under the conditions involves a tendency to return into unity, a tendency ineradicable until satisfied. And he pauses for a moment. What I have just said to you are not my words, but that of Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. From his prose poem, Eureka, his last in what he considered his greatest work, paraphrased, of course, as Mr. Poe is too verbose for even a collection of fine gentlemen such as yourself. Here he has described a universe forever in a cycle of expansion and contraction, forever on its way from the one to the many, from the many to the one, and very well may have anticipated, in part, the scientific truth of our universe. As some of you know, it has been observed that spiral nebulae are moving away from our perspective on Earth, and that Mr. Einstein's theory of general relativity does not admit static cosmological solutions, but describes the universe as either expanding or shrinking. And you'll have to remember that the Big Bang theory isn't fully coalesced at this time. As you can see here, the artist, Mr. Poe, teases at the limits of human imagination and thought, but it is the scientist that confirms or refutes what the artist imagined. I tell you not to strain at the limits of human imagination as an artist would, because who can count on the vagaries of their muse, but to adopt the scientific process, as all men can be trained to understand the material world. The principles of this order are science, philosophy, and magic. As a neophyte, science will be your guiding principle. We are all of us subjects in an objective world. From this understanding, we have learned that our eyes may see, our ears may hear, our tongue may taste, our nose may smell, and our skin may feel. But more than these five senses can measure exists. We must maintain that an objective reality exists and that it can be shared by rational observers, even if it threatens our own dearly held notions of homocentric or ideological belief. Before I call for your oaths, I will leave you again with the words of Mr. Poe. What I here propound is true, therefore it cannot die. Or if by any means it be now trodden down so that it die, it will rise again to life everlasting. Repeat these oaths after me. I promise to keep the secrets of the order. I promise, I promise to, to keep, keep the secrets of the, order. of the order. I promise to seek after knowledge. I promise, I promise to, to seek, seek after, after knowledge. knowledge. I promise to live according to the principles of the order. I promise, I promise to, to live according to the principles, to the principles of, the of the order. order. I promise to understand that I am a subject in an objective world. I promise, I promise to understand, to understand that I am a subject, subject in an objective, objective world. objective world. Welcome to the order, brothers. Rise and be recognized. And at that point, the, uh, the house lights go on, as it were, and you see surrounding you are a bunch of order members to the left and the right, and they all stand and they are clapping and cheering, and they sort of converge on you guys, um, shaking hands, clapping you on the shoulder, welcoming you to the order. A lot of them are curious to get to know you because they, they hear that you are here at 
Mr. Rupert Merriweather's um, recommendation. And a lot of them are quite fond of him. But you're kind of, it's kind of a whirlwind. You're you're sort of rushed out, like down the steps and uh, into the kitchen where a great feast has been put together for you. Give it a moment to move it over to that map. That was actually a pretty smooth transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. And look, Legolas is here Mm -hmm. as John Scott. (laughs) Oh, Legolas. (laughs) Yeah, so you you are brought to this room where a a whole meal's laid out and there's servants on hand waiting to attend to... Johan, what are you doing there? Oh, right. He wasn't surprised. (laughs) I can't see anything if I'm not there. (laughs) He never was there. Um... And most of the conversation is light and or small talk in the early part of the meal. But as food is consumed and drink is consumed, um, people start to push their plates away and conversation opens up a bit. So at this point, Wallace, you, you've found yourself seated to a, a guy who's introduced himself as Dr. Edward Call. Uh, retired, of course. Um, he's a a great wide man. Um, as a doctor, you might wonder how he's let himself get to that state, but there he is. He's got jowls that shake when he uh, speaks to you, but he has a jovial attitude and uh, sort of a weird, almost British affectation to his speech, even though he doesn't necessarily sound British. He'll just occasionally pronounce certain words. Like that uh, kind of old school, rich right. vernacular. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. what? Uh, Edward Call. I was going to ask you guys if you saw nameplates now. Yes. Yep. On the NPCs. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's how I knew that Legolas was John Scott. <laughs> so, yeah, Dr. Edward Call's been in your uh, ear for a little while um, what over was dinner. That? What's that? Why did it just blow up Dr. Edward Call? Uh, you can, the GM can grab a token and force everybody to. For it to expand out. Ooh, okay. Okay. Yeah, dude. That was that took a sanity hit there. So, <laughs> I uh, roll a sanity roll. So uh as I understand it, you're you're a doctor yourself. Is that right, Mr. Andrews? Yes, sir, I am. And uh what kind of a doctor are you? A retired one. Oh, the best kind. But I just had a general practitioner. Mm. You know, family doctor, yeah. drive out to the country. Honorable profession. Yeah, I, I much preferred it to the hospitals. Far too much stress there for me. I, I, have you worked in any hospitals? Yes. Uh, that's where most of my work has been done, is in hospitals. So uh, I most ho- recently did work in a uh, hospital in Peru. Peru? Oh, yes, I a heard Catholic about that. hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Merriweather was saying something about you and uh, some of the others' adventures. Got into trouble with the savages down there, was it? Well, no, the uh, the natives were quite welcoming there, but there were some there was some trouble. Trouble. That's in my retirement. I I find that's what I'm looking for: some adventure. Mm. You know, before I sh- I shuffle off the mortal coil, as it were. Uh, you know, ever since, and he starts to go into this talk about retirement, he mentions, he's like, you know, my wife died last year. No, don't be sad. I, uh, I didn't like her. <laughs> I know most people wouldn't admit this, but 
John Scott has encouraged us to talk the truth without concerns of, you know, moral judgment or safe to say our thoughts here in these walls. And while I was grieving and all of that is true, of course, what they don't tell you is how relieved you'll be after a long relationship with a woman Mm -hmm. when she dies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's... You know, sometimes I'll get sad. I find I uh, absentmindedly make tea for two and, well, she's not there anymore, but she's also not telling me I can't go to this place or talk to this person. And are are you married? No, sir. Uh, no longer. My I was for a time. My wife and daughter died of the flu. Well, then you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I do not. But oh. I can see what you're trying to say. Right. Your daughter, that's... We weren't together for quite as long as you and your wife were. The daughter, a child would be something else altogether. I, uh, uh, You know, we were never able to have children. Um, you know, the thing that most fascinates me about you, Doctor, is I understand you're a member of the Society for the Exploration of the Unexplained. Is that correct? Yes. I uh, joined that. Um, society um, after my trip in Peru. So, so you're fascinated with unexplained mysteries? Yes. I, Although that wasn't true always, uh, after the events in Peru, it's become um, quite important to me to discover mysteries that others can't explain. Uh, are, uh, did you do any of the investigations surrounding the uh, flying cow incidents up near Bolton? I found those particularly fascinating. I was not involved in that. I do you think there's any truth that. to it? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I find it hard to believe that cows can fly, but I have seen some odd things. Oh, I believe it. So, As a doctor, yeah, we've seen our, share, our fair share. I wonder if you might do me a personal uh, favor now that we're fraternal brothers and everything. Uh, next time you go off on one of your hair-raising investigations, would you allow me to partake? I, I tell you, I'm awfully lacking in interesting activities in my later years. Uh, yes, I will keep you in mind. Uh, it would always benefit to have another doctor on board. And you mean that truly, right? I do. <laughs> but, um, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I understand. No, I do. No, I'll, tell, I'll say, you know, you because know, I'm, like, brand new to this, so I can't, like, I don't want to just come out with the truth. So <laughs> I'll just be like, yeah, I definitely would love to have another doctor, another analytical mind to help me. Um Bring some order to. to the <laughs> mysteries that, that we uncover. I'd love to introduce you to untold horrors <laughs> yeah. that I witnessed on my journeys in Peru. <laughs> Just have them There's always walk into those mm. fat worms that you can introduce them to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they'd like this It's guy. a feast. <laughs> Doctor, have you ever witnessed what an elephant rifle does to a human torso? <laughs> no need for surgical knives. You just reach right in and pluck out what you want, if it's still there. <laughs> All right, Lance. So you, uh, you've been kind of overhearing this um, conversation between the two doctors. I'll probably be 
since I'm right next to John Scott, I'll probably be conversing with him. Yeah, um, he's drawn your attention, and he says, uh, so as I understand it, Mr. Merriweather says you're quite versed in the occult. Uh, yes, I've made a kind of a passion project for myself over the years, and that's what my museum is dedicated to. I have a very interesting book to show you, and he signals to one of the servants. Um, servant comes over, whispers in his ear, and uh, departs. And he's like, perhaps you could illuminate me on some areas that I might be lacking. Um, as I understand it, you went down to Peru on Mr. Merriweather's behest. Yes, that was uh, an enlightening experience. Yeah, I read um, uh, Thaddeus Grunwald there at the Miskatonic University did an annotation on your collected journals. It was quite fascinating. Did you, is that the complete God's honest truth? Um, well, all God's honest truths are through a perspective. Um, if you're looking for another take on, on the matter, Jackson Elias has a book that is being released very shortly about his adventures down there with us. And he stayed behind and did some more investigations to, you know, flesh out some of the more local traditions and, and what he could find. And what was the nature of this? Was it a cult you guys ran across? These, okay, um, the term escapes me now. You referred to them as? The Pishtaku. Right. Sounded like a myth. Well, don't all death cults? Indeed. And that's why I find them endlessly fascinating. Uh, that's a subject that we both share. See, because I don't find that myths are created whole cloth. I, I think that's a far too pessimistic view of humans. I think there are always some seed of truth at the core of every myth. Uh, I, I agree most wholeheartedly. And it is a matter that I have made a uh, subject of endless search. In fact, my uh, time at college, I spent uh, trying to uncover as many of the details of the cults that came over with the uh, settlers in America, as well as some of the cults that had been here before. And tell me, have you discovered anything that has thrown off this materialistic view our society to be, seems to be trapped in at the moment? Mm. Well, not as far as the occult is concerned. And at that point, though, a servant arrives back with a great leather or what appears to be leather-bound tome of significant age, and he sets it, or he... He, or no, sorry, John Scott pulls out a pair of white gloves first, and he happens to have a pair for you. And uh, he kind of opens it up very carefully and give me an occult roll. Okay. Ooh. Hmm. I will have already read the book and memorized <laughs> oh, it. Oh, yeah, that one's... <laughs> Depending on what it is, you might have read a version of it, but this might be the real... Yeah. One of the real printings or whatever, yeah. Maybe right, Merriweather has is. something on it. It is a... So I'll... Show it to everyone there. So this book, you recognize it instantly almost before it's brought to you by the Latin inscribed on the cover and on the binding. But the title for the book in Latin is the Malleus Malficarum. Uh, now you have actually read the German translation. Um, in English, we call it the Hammer of Witches, but it has the excellent German title, Der Hexenhammer. Nice. Um, it's a guide for inquisitors during the Middle Ages on the identification and torturous persuasion of witches. Uh, some people think it may have helped send approximately 9 million people to their deaths based off its prescriptions. It's, and he's like, I find this book most fascinating. I, uh, 
have a difficult time thinking of any other piece of written word that might have killed more people outside of the major religious documentations, if you two are, are to ascribe the guilt to those. But here, please take a look. Uh, yes, this is one that I have heard of and, and read in, in some forms before. What was your question? You, you mentioned that there were some clarifications that you thought I might be able to, to give you in this matter. Well, my Latin's not as great as it should be, I suppose. I, this is just one of the many rare books we have in here, but I had understood that you spoke or read or wrote Latin, or all three, perhaps. Uh, yes, I, am, I can translate most. I, I wouldn't say that I am perfunctory fluent in it, but uh, yes, I, I should be able to assist. Well, there are some particular passages that I have an interest in a different take on its translation. I was wondering if we might get together over drinks and you could help me through them. I think that would be uh, most enjoyable, yes. Uh, if you point them out now, I might be able to uh, take a look at them before our conversation. Yeah, so you guys get sort of lost in him pointing out different passages and he'll, he'll be like, this is my understanding, and then you can give a Latin roll, actually. Ooh, nice. 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 Check mark. I found languages were so hard to find the right balance on leveling up and not. Yeah. yeah. All right. So yeah, you guys, uh, so we'll fade with you um, kind of looking at different passages that he points out and we'll bounce over to Whitmire who finds himself most engaged in conversation with Logan Terry, Sergeant Logan Terry, a police officer here in Boston. Is this like an interrogation? <laughs> <laughs> A Surprise, little bit. You're in a room. There's a mirror. <laughs> Let me shift him up here. He uh, he has a, a brusque manner and and he's sort of abrasive. And actually, the moment he was sat down with you, he's kind of given you the suspicious eye, as though he smells the stink of a criminal on you, <laughs> or some such. <laughs> and uh, the way he broaches conversation, he asks you. Uh, now, don't I know you? I feel like I've seen you elsewhere around Boston. What's your occupation? Um, I'm in the import-export business. Vanderlei Industries? Shipping. Shipping? Yeah. Import-export. Hmm. So what brings you to our little fraternal order? Well, I, uh, I done some work for uh, Mr. Merriweather in the past. And, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, invited me to join as I'm already a member of the, um, I can't ever remember the name of that one, the exploration. Oh, right. One. You can say the S-E-U. Yeah. So I'm already a member of the S-E-U. No, import exports. I don't think I met anybody like you. I think I know where I saw somebody that looked like you. Were you... I think it must have been two years ago. You were hanging out over at uh, Dean or Drew's gambling hall, weren't you? And uh, this is kind of shocking because he Drew's gambling hall isn't like a name that's out on the the marquee or something like that. Like I described, it's the place you just visited in the basement. Yeah, I'm gonna try a fast talk, like you know, okay. see if I can get out of this. <laughs> No, <laughs> it always fails you, man. I I know. I haven't hit one of these yet, and it was supposed to be one of my best skills. 
He said, ah, just relax. You think if I were in here busting bootleggers, I wouldn't already be doing it. And he takes a big drink of his scotch whiskey there. And he's like, cheers. I'll, uh, I guess, what do they have? Because uh, I don't drink. Oh, you get tea or yeah, punch. I mean, whatever it is. This is all yeah, kind of uh, heavily sweating at this point. <laughs> I think the last time you ordered a drink, you got like a club soda. Yeah. Something like that. Oh, but yeah, I'll uh, I'll ask him, uh, you know, how long he's been uh, busting heads down at Drew's then. Oh, I have not been busting heads down there. I send other people to do it. But, you know, I just want to know where everybody stands. Let's keep it honest from here on out. That sounds good Agree? to me. So what, what do I see you in Boston again for? What are you up to now? Besides imports, exports. <laughs> well... As, uh, I'll I'll ask him if he's familiar with uh, the the death of Mister Dooley. Then give me a psychology roll. Mm. <laughs> like, how go. does that work out? Is <laughs> the the one skill that I have at the highest? I fail on everything else. That's good. Yeah, you didn't fail by much. So yeah, his eyes uh, like widen, and he tries to cover the expression on his face by like pretending to splutter on his drink as he takes a drink. And he's like, oh, pardon me. Uh, what, Mr. Dooley, oh, yes, uh, been in the papers. Not my precinct, though. Only what I've read in the papers. Yeah, I'll uh, clap him on the back and tell him, you know, must have went down the wrong pipe. And uh, Indeed. But I'll, I will tuck that information away that he might know something, because I'm not going to try and exploit it here, though. Why was, are you asking uh, but, about it? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell him that, uh, you know, I was... It's something that uh, that you know we were asked, or I was asked to you know take a look at, just because it's uh, after that business in Peru. Maybe they think I'm an expert on that on this stuff, but I'm looking at it. It scares the hell out of me. So his he sets his drink down very carefully, and his uh, demeanor and his gaze becomes fixed on you, and he has a deadly serious expression. And he seems to savor the words as he says them. Who asked you to look into it? As what was the uh, uh, what was the name of the detective that had the journal? Nichols. No, the other one, not the one that hired us. His partner. Oh, uh, uh, Fallon, Detective Fallon. Yeah, that's who I'm going to say. Detective Fallon asked you that. Uh, yeah, me and Fallon, we go way back. Go ahead and give me a fast talk roll on that one. <laughs> There you, right. there you Almost go. Almost failed it. <laughs> that was uh, close. He picks his drink up and he offers it as a toast again. And he's like, to Detective Fallon. I was all, uh, yeah, clink my glass with him and yeah, take a drink watching him. Worked with him a little bit. Good fellow. But after yeah. that toast and uh, um, he excuses himself, but not without a very pointed look at you and then he exits the dining room okay. and we will actually close the scene and the session on his suspicious look exit. at mr whitmire thanks for playing guys <laughs> hell yeah man yeah, thank you thank you chris my showdown with with mueller on our knowledges was a lot of fun uh he'll get you next time so i mean to do this at the end of the session so we can actually get those luck increases
This has been a Death Watch production. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.